Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page ad-free. listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we talk with IRS Records co-founder and band manager Miles Copeland about his memoir and working with bands like R.E.M., The Police, and The Go-Go's. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. But first, some new music to review from Brandy Carlisle and Parquet Courts. That is a little bit of Right on Time from the new Brandy Carlisle album, In These Silent Days, her seventh studio album since 2005. An artist who began her career in the Seattle Music Clubs uh, in the 2000s, working with twin brothers Tim and Phil Hensroth. Uh, They have been her uh, collaborators ever since. They've been working together for a couple of decades now. Um, You know, she really had a breakthrough in 2018 with By the Way, I Forgive You. Everybody kind of points to that performance at the Grammy Awards uh, a year later uh, as kind of a signature moment for her uh, national breakout. You know, people are recognized, this is a major, major talent. And she got Um, an armful of those golden statuettes. She did indeed. And uh, she is, uh, she soon went on to work with The High Woman, uh, an an album that we reviewed, Mm -hmm. an all-star contingent of country-tinged Americana-esque performers uh, collaborating. Uh, She did a cover of Joni Mitchell's Blue at a a major concert event, a tribute to, to Joni. Uh, she's written a memoir that was well-reviewed, and uh, as I mentioned, that uh, performance of The Joke in 2019 at the Grammys. So just a bunch of amazing stuff that's happening to Carlisle now, being recognized as one of the great voices in Americana. So now we have this new album, In These Silent Days. Here's a track from it. It's called Broken Horses on Sound Opinions. Spaces and fields that lead from Broken Horses by Brandy Carlisle in these silent days, her new album, her seventh, Mr. Cod, only Broken Horses know to run. Mm-hmm. Um, this album gives me hives. 
As you know, I have a severe allergic reaction to too much Broadway in any of my popular music, and uh, especially in my Americana or my rock and roll. You know, she grew up as a Elton John fan, mm -hmm. and boy, can you hear that. Yeah. <laughs> there is, you know, what do I mean by too much Broadway? I hate that inauthentic Super theatrical, singing over the top with a little bit of that diva kind of thing. Look yeah. at me, I can go to the Mariah Carey register. And wow, it, it just makes everything sound trivial. And that would be especially problematic if there were deep thoughts on this uh, album, as there are uh, in, I've read passages, I have not read her entire memoir, Broken Horses, um, but I've read passages from it. You know, and I'm sorry, I, I'm a tried and weathered woman, but I won't be tried again. Uh, that Broken Horses line I quoted, uh, I want to be your silver bullet in your gun, she sings in a werewolf mama song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My own sweet child, won't you promise me you'll be the one? My silver bullet in the gun. Wow, I just, uh, every time I listened to this album, I liked it less. Mm. Well, I, uh, you know, I hate to say I agree with you, but I agree with you. Um, wow, I was expecting a defense. I, no, I love Brandy Carlisle. I think she's got a tremendous voice. And I, I picked that song, Broken Horses, to play because I thought it was kind of something more akin to what I was aiming for or hoping that she would be aiming for on this record. Like a very raw kind of stripped down uh, you know, approach. Um, you know, there's biblical imagery there and everything, but the yeah. but the grit in her voice really matches uh you know, the content. Well, and uh, everybody's talking about the rock approach mm, on that song. I've yeah. read several reviews. I always listen a half a dozen times and yeah. then see what other people are saying and then listen half a dozen more. People keep comparing that to the who. Yeah. I don't hear that. I hear the same problem we have in mainstream Nashville country, which is let's put a little eagles in our country mm. and we call it rock. Yeah, although that wrecks harder than most Eagles songs, I'll have to say. Uh, yeah, and, and you're right about yeah. the Elton stuff. Uh, in Paul Buckmaster, before he passed, uh, did the strings on the the last record. They yeah. had that big orchestral approach. They dialed back a little bit on that on this on this record. You know, she's working with Dave Cobb, who's one of the big Nashville producers. He's kind of the cool guy in Nashville, mm. right, for the country artists. Uh, and they pulled back just a touch on that big orchestration, which was a good move. But they're, the melodrama, man, it just, oh, yeah. it just, it gets, you know, after a while, it just gets a little wearying. It's like how many bromides, how many bumper sticker choruses, how many uh, kind of big cliche self-help I'm, I'm going to, you know, get out from under this um, you, you're talking sentiments about... can you make in one record? Stay gentle, keep the eyes of a child, don't harden your heart or your head. And I'm going, this is not profound. This is just, this is cliche. And, and she's smarter than that. I just think she knows, she should know better. And, and we, you know, should, we should point out she comes from an alternative perspective. Oh my God. John Perella said in a Sue comment, if there's a more classic 21st century figure than Brandy Carlisle, who is it? Because she just seems to press all the right buttons. And the voice is there. The team around her is there. And yet we have this big overdone you know, Broadway-esque kind yeah, of record, and yeah. it's disappointing. Much was made of the fact that it was made in isolation in uh, northern Washington state, where she lives uh, in a fairly rural area. Yeah. Her neighbors are those brothers, so maybe they just needed some outside ears. I guess. I 
that is a little bit of a song called Plant Life from the seventh album by Parquet Courts, Sympathy for Life. Greg, one of the most spectacular live events Sound Opinions ever did was a uh, uh, concert interview double feature with Parquet Courts yeah. and Savages. Boy, was that a good night. Back yeah, when, good night. Back when, you know, such things could happen in person. Um, who was this band? We caught on to them uh, early on, right after their first cassette-only release back in 2011. Uh, a Texas uh, group quartet that relocated to New York uh, really uh, began to get a lot of buzz with Light Up Gold in 2012. Now they are on their seventh album. I'm surprised that they're, they're around this long. We haven't mm. heard from them since 2018. Uh, what is going on? You know, during uh, the period just before COVID, apparently they started having a bunch of dance parties. Oh, and listening quite a bit to Remain in Light by the Talking Heads. How does that uh, result in the 11 tracks on this new album? Let's play one. We'll come back and give our opinions. This is a song called Walking at a Downtown Pace by Parquet Courts. The new album is Sympathy for Life. That I've tasted all the drinks that I consume. Return the smile on an unmasked friend as we take streets. I don't walk down because I want to avoid finding temptation. Walk out of downtown place and treasure the crowds that once made me act so annoyed. Sometimes I wonder. Is walking at a downtown pace from the new Parquet Courts record, Sympathy for Life. Uh, a lot of times, I think, the focus on this band has been on the two main singers and songwriters, A. Savage and Austin Brown. Uh, justifiably, I mean, they're, they're a good team. They remind me a little bit of that Bob Mould, Grant Hart dynamic mm. in the 80s. I think, uh, for my money, as good as any band in, of the last 10 years in terms of just consistently good records and what I love about them is that they never give you the same record twice they're always evolving uh, this record is a great example of that I don't think a lot of people are expecting a dance record from uh, Parquet Courts at this point but that's what they gave us um, you know they talked about uh, we didn't want to just do a band thing like so, you know I, I hear some reference points like the Happy Mondays Stone Roses that sort of mm. late 80s early 90s era of British rock where it was uh, you know very much in, in, in inspired by rave culture but they were talking about like we wanted to be like a DJ, you know, you know the the tones here were going to be a, a DJ related as opposed to band related, and uh, Austin Brown did a lot of manipulating with, you know, the the the, the faders, you know, kind of a lot of a dub yeah. type of approach to the production. Um, the stars of the show are for the most part the the rhythm section. Um, Great job by Max Savage on drums, uh, A. Savage's brother, yep. and uh, and Sean Eaton especially the bass player. I think it's, it's a bass record. heavy record. Yeah, it is. And um, you know, walking at a downpound pace. I love that song. They're, those that kind of marching drum vibe, uh, very very political in spots. Uh, you know, the the song uh, Marathon of Anger really was inspired by the Black Lives Matter protests in New York City uh, last summer. A marathon of anger now. A couple of outliers, you know, they've got the Black Widow Spider song and the, the Homo Sapien song, which are references to the punk aggression of their early days, but primarily a dance-oriented record. I think it gets a little soft in the middle. 
Yeah. There's a lot of ambient, jammy stuff that doesn't really go anywhere. The song-oriented approach that I love so much about this band sort of got tossed out the window. This band, I think this record primarily is, is going to be a vehicle for live the live thing that the band does, and we'll see where it goes there. You know, I, I hate to make this comparison, but I will. Um, you know, it's kind of like fish. You know, see it live. It's going to be better. <laughs> it's it's going to be better. It's going to be better live. You know, because the song. You know, it, it takes a while for some of the songs to gel. I think Parquet Courts has made about half of a good record here. I I, I think there there's there's dead spots here that I think um, are not quite as strong as the consistent. Uh, records that they have been putting out lately. The last three or four records have been great. I think this is merely an okay Parquet Courts record. Yeah, I would agree. I was bored by large stretches of it. Black Widow, Spider, Homo Sapien, those are Parquet Courts by numbers, right? Yeah. If you had a Parquet Courts uh, tribute band, you would you would play those, and, and they sound like everything else in the set. I advocated uh, bumping in with Plant Life. You, you seem surprised. Uh, I just love the idea of a lyric imagining yourself to be a houseplant. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so both of these seventh albums, Brandy Carlisle and Parquet Courts, uh, both of them quite obviously crafted in COVID isolation yeah. with just the core members. Uh, we were all kind of houseplants for a year <laughs> and a half there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that struck me as the rare lyric that jumps out. These guys suffer from a pavement disease. What the heck are Parquet Course talking about? Application, soothing like a mother's voice, speaks instructions to me in my native tongue. Mm. Is that a love song to Siri I, or know, Amazon's Alexa? I, I think there is some, uh, you know, deeper level stuff there that we'll never be able to fathom. I Although, don't think it's deep. I think it's stoner babbling. I, well, they got compared to Pavement a lot early on, right? Yeah. And I, I think they sort of evolved beyond that. But I do. I will say that Pulsanella, the last track on the record, uh, that gets me. It, it's personal. It's emotional. Um, I think A. Savage has been writing some very personal songs amid all this kind of you know, collegiate level, you know, wordplay yeah. on a lot of their records. He seems to have this knack for pulling out one track and album that just, just I, really I, nails I'm it. I'm bored by Parquet Courts. You say maybe it'd come to life I'm going to dance. I'm going to dance to And this maybe record. it would, but I, I, I can't it, wait to know, see him live. I'm so bored uh, by them that I'm not going to bother to see them live. You just tell me if they pulled that <laughs> off. That's what we thought of uh, Parquet Courts and Brandy Carlisle. Very mixed uh, reviews. Uh, records we were looking forward to, we weren't overly blown away. In case people thought we got soft yeah. during COVID. Well, you know, we don't want people to think that. But uh, we want to know what you think now. Give us a call. Uh, leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, with your opinion. Coming up, we have a conversation with music executive Miles Copeland. That's next on Sound Opinions. And we are back. We recently caught up with Miles Copeland, the former manager of New Wave Legends, The Police, and the co-founder of IRS Records. The Police, of course, included his brother Stuart on drums, but that didn't limit his musical interests. He worked with an incredibly diverse range of artists, and uh, IRS was one of the most important labels, uh, certainly in my life. Uh, what about you, Greg? No kidding, Jim. Uh, hugely important. And uh, yeah, Miles did work with a pretty good array of artists. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the Go-Go's, <laughs> R.E.M., the Bangles, Dead Kennedys, that ain't bad. Yeah, and many more. Miles Copeland took the time to sit down with us and talk about his new book, an amusing memoir called Two Steps Forward, One Step Back. Let's hear what he had to say and what it took to work with bands like those. 
Miles, welcome to Sound Opinions. Well, I'm glad to be on it. I know, you know, for most people, the world shut down for a year and a half, uh, starting in March 2020. You said, okay, I guess I got to stay still for a bit. It's time for me to write down my stories. For so many years, I've had people saying, yeah, you got to write a book. So when the lockdown happened, I sort of said, well, I have nothing else to do. So I started <laughs> writing, about, you know, three months goes by. And before I knew it, I'd, I'd written this, this book. What had interested me most was the lessons learned from from both the successes and the mistakes. So it was more I was more interested in a, in a promotional, you know, marketing stroke motivational book than I was about this is my life and this is what I did and aren't I great? You know that that always smelled of uh, a little bit too self serving to me. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, when I wrote, I figured, well, okay, I've got to mention my father in the CIA and growing up in Lebanon, and people don't expect that, and so I'll, I threw that in as well. You know, but <laughs> but basically, I I, I the reason the, the title is two steps forward, one step back. It's it's sort of a recognition of the fact that no matter how smart you are and how successful you are, you're going to make mistakes. So. You're going to have some two steps forward, but definitely you're going to have some steps back as well. Well, there there is an unusual frankness for uh, music industry books. You know, Greg and I uh, done this for so many years. We've read them all. You know, you you own up to a lot of mistakes. You know, and and also to happy accidents, things that you didn't think would work that did, things that you thought would work that didn't. Uh, there's an unusual frankness there. And and uh, were you hesitant in sharing? any of that stuff? Or you figured if I'm going to do this, I'm just going to lay it all out. You know, I'd read so many books. A lot of people got things wrong, you know, yeah. or they misinterpreted or they left things out so that you sort of came to a conclusion that was inaccurate. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do a book, I should make it as honest as possible. Truth is really this is that I learned as much from a mistake as I did from a success. Sometimes maybe more so. Hmm. I think it's wrong for somebody to come out and just think that somehow they were always successful. You know, I wasn't, you know, I made mistakes. I missed some things, uh, misinterpreted, but I think that's all part of the game, really. The thing that's fascinating to me, Miles, reading your book is that it reinforced the idea that you were sort of self-made. This was not an intentional career bent on world conquest. It was not like you had this master plan. It seemed like one thing after another sort of fell into place. You took advantage of opportunities when they presented themselves, but you weren't like, hey, I'm going to do this in five years. It really sensed that this was sort of a serendipitous kind of series of occurrences, including bankruptcy, which probably would have made most people fold up their tent uh, just as you were getting going. What was it about this? And, and let's just be frank here. You know, the Hunter S. Thompson quote, uh, the music industry is a is a cesspool, et cetera. Rabid weasels. You know, yes. rabid weasels running amok. You wanted to stick it out in this business. What, what made you want to stick it out through the hardships and through the, through the accidents? Well, you know, I, I, would, I would probably use a baseball analogy. When you get up at bat, the first job is to get the first base. When you get the first base, your next job is to get the second base. <laughs> yeah. And then the third and then the home. But if you get up to bat and every time you think, well, I'm just going to I'm going to get home, you know, without thinking, well, my first job is to get to first base. I think really you make a mistake. So you're right. I kind of did go step by step. I mean, I would go do one thing and that would lead to another and then and lead to another. And then maybe a tangent would happen and you go off in another direction. So I think really my father actually described it very well, the sort of flexibility. You know, if you don't know where you're going, you kind of go one step forward and then you see where the next one leads. And that's sort of where I went really. 
I did not have a master plan. When I went to college and did an MA degree, I thought maybe I would do some sort of business in the Middle East. But, you know, I kind of fell into the music business. That was not any idea other than the fact that I liked music. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you talked about the idea that initially you thought you might follow in your father's footsteps and, and, and enjoy the CIA. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey, he, he seems like he's having a good time. You know, why can't I? And then you w went into this really kind of still everybody was figuring it out business. What was exciting about it for, for you right from the outset? Well, you know, my first experience was really going to London. And at the time, you know, the Beatles had happened and, and everybody was talking about things that are happening in England. But I arrived in a country where in a lot of ways it was pretty backward, you know, and I heard a couple of things that were said that sort of tweaked my interest. And I thought, well, wow, this is the place to be. Somebody said, if it hasn't been done, there must be a good reason for it. <laughs> and I thought, well, boy, <laughs> if that's true, there'd be a lot of great inventions that are never made. And then somebody said to me, oh, you know what? At a grocery store, I always choose the longest line to stand in. Well, I had just come from Lebanon, and the whole idea in the Middle East is you butt in front of the next guy. That's how you get ahead, you know. <laughs> yeah. So the idea that you would stand in the longest line sounded to me like this is crazy. So I figured, wow, if that's how people think in England, this place is going to be easy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I just decided, you know what, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to try my luck at rock and roll. And, you know, I kind of threw myself in and I did things that I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do. And they worked. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing about America is that I think the average American tends to have a sort of positive, you know, attitude that, you know, think, you know, the glass is half full. Where in England, I think they just not so long ago had come out of World War II, where, you know, I think the propensity was to think the glass is half empty, mm -hmm. you know, because they just been through a horrendous situation. You know, in America, we never really had to face that. Well, Greg referenced uh, the bankruptcy and there was uh, th that disastrous tour and not hugely uh, successful experiences with Wishbone Ash and Renaissance and those bands in the first era. And then you wind up kind of in exactly the right place at the right time, open to anything in front of you in the punk era. But I was surprised, Miles, given how much, you know, Greg and I are of the age where, uh, you know, some of the formative records that shaped our life you put out were IRS records, right? Uh, so many of those bands meant so much to us. I, I just got the impression, though, reading uh, you recount the punk years that you were always a little skeptical of punk. You, you were like, the key is uh, not to be looking back, not to be part of the past, to be moving forward. But did you like that energy? <laughs> that's what I the, was wondering. The, the energy was actually great. And that's what I liked the most about it. Mm. I mean, some of the bands could hardly play. Yeah. I remember I, I one of the bands, it was Susie and the Banshees. They were playing somewhere and I, I got a roadie to help them out. And he had been with the climax blues band so he knew you know he knew how to tune a guitar and plug an amp in and all that good stuff and i, I said look just help this group out you know get him on stage and I, I couldn't go to the show and i get this phone call and he goes mose oh how am i supposed to help this group they can't play they can't play <laughs> He was sort of shocked that, you know, but that was the beauty of it. I mean, you could have guys that said, well, you know, I don't know how to play drums, but I'm going to be a drummer. And they get, grab a drum kit, and they get on stage. And next thing you knew, they were in a band, mm -hmm. you know. So it was this fly by the seat of your pants. I'm just going to go do it attitude. 
that was actually kind of anti-English at the time. Yeah. So the punks excited me with the energy and the fact that they kind of said, we can do it. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be heavily trained musicians, you know, and actually they said, we don't have to have a lot of money, which yeah. was perfect for me because I had none at the time. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I was penniless, but I knew the business. Nobody would pay attention to them. They did not know the business. So I, I was like the perfect guy they could work with because they would take my phone call, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. whereas the, the regular music business wouldn't. People just wrote me off. So the punks and I were sort of in the same boat. We were both penniless and nobody would pay attention to us. Right. When you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. That's pretty much the way I saw it. But I was excited about the energy of it. But, uh, you know, when I saw the Clash or the Pistols or whatever, I mean, I didn't walk away saying, man, that guy's a great guitar player. Or, wow, what a, what a drummer, you know. You walked away saying, I, I liked what they were doing or what they were saying, but it was not a musical experience, let's say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, your brother Stewart's band, The Police, initially, Stewart wanted to be part of that wave of punk bands. He wanted to be a punk uh, in that punk scene. I think you had a perspective on the band that maybe they didn't in, in choosing that single that broke them through, right? Well, the reality was Stuart really pushed to have this group be a punk group because he got he got excited about all the energy just like I did. And Sting really didn't like the punk thing. You know, I mean, his view was the lyrics are crap. You know, nobody can play. He came from a jazz group. You yeah. Know? Uh, but he also, you know, liked the excitement of the thing and the vibe of it and the press and all that. So I think he got excited about it, but not musically. Some of the songs that he was writing, Roxanne being one, he would not think would work within this whole punk thing. So when I said, let's record an album and went into the studio, they didn't want to play me Roxanne because they figured, well, it's, you know, it's, it's everything punk rock is not. It's sweet. It's quiet. It's a ballad. It's a love song. And the punks were busy going, you know, rah, 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 gotta work, gotta screw you, (laughs) hell with you. It was all aggressive and nasty. So Roxanne was the antithesis of that. So when I said to the group, you know, play me the damn song, I've come here all this way to Leatherhead, the engineer finally put it on. And I'm listening to this song and I'm thinking, that is true to what the police really are. Mm -hmm. You know, it had this sort of reggae pop. It had all the elements of breaking the rules in a way. But in a way that was musical. And I looked at the band and said, guys, you created a masterpiece. And they looked at me like I had two heads. You like that? <laughs> so I think in that in the back of Sting's head, he must have been thinking, hell, I got a lot more songs like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, and this is and when course, punk, you Walking know, on the Moon and yeah. Can't Stand Losing You and all those other great songs he, he had. You know, and punk, so punk becomes new, new wave, you know, uh, Miles, because uh, it, it has that attitude. Punk got rigid uh, fairly quickly in what was punk. Got to be angry, like you were saying. And then it's like, well, yeah, but we can do other things. We can we can write like the Beatles, like Squeeze, a band that you loved uh, dearly, or the Police, or, you know, we can, we can do other things. Well, the bands that finally came through were ones that actually had musical ability, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Buzzcocks, when you first listen to that record, it sounds kind of raucous, but when you listen to Pete Shelley's songs, you realize those are really good little pop songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. And that's why they've been picked up on a lot of commercials. So you hear the Buzzcocks picked up on quite a few big corporate commercials. I just want to love like any other. What do I get? 
Underneath all that sort of anger and aggression, there were real songs there. So the punk bands that really lasted, the ones that had something more than just anger, those ones lasted and became very influential. But what really happened is a lot of the musicians who got excited about it followed up with, you know, the new romantics and all these other types of groups came forward. And all of a sudden, the, the music took the energy, but also added music musical ability and the willingness to kind of break rules and to look at things anew. And you had this whole new music come out, which they've called New Wave, right. which, by the way, I got blamed for creating. Somebody said <laughs> Miles Copeland has created the word New Wave to hide from the fact that it's really all punk music. Mm -hmm. I did not invent the word New Wave, but <laughs> I'll, I'll accept it. You know. The right. French, French cinephiles got there first, right? The point being, you, you mentioned the Buzzcocks, and I had a question for you about that, Miles, because I always thought the Buzzcocks in retrospect, are deeply appreciated for the songs they wrote. They were a hugely melodic band. A lot of people still say to me, like, how was that band not on the radio constantly back then? You know, I have the same question. What, what, what was it? The Buscots clearly had the talent, the songs, as you said. What kept them? You know, police explodes, but the Buscocks don't. What was? What's the difference? When I first signed the Buscocks, you know, I, I had I had the rights for North America because they had a British company that did sign them. But nobody in America would pay attention to them because they only heard the kind of raucous, rough edges of the band. What I heard was the fact that they were actually pretty damn good, you mm -hmm. know. And I liked the energy, but I also liked the song. So we put the record out, and we sold something like twenty-five thousand copies. But the reality was nobody really at A and M considered the group a real group now they do of course but you know at the time people were they understood the police they could they could understand that because they played more than three chords but a lot of the bands they missed as a matter of fact when i went into jerry moss and i was getting pressure from a lot of the acts i had in england but we want our record out in america so i would you know i went to jerry moss and said look jerry i've got all these bands in england and I've recorded them and they want to see their records out in America. So I'll tell you, I'll make you a deal. I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. I don't need your money. Just release the records and uh, I'll do the rest. OK, because I'd already recorded the groups. You know? mm -hmm. So and the Buzzcocks, I, I made a cheap deal with them because nobody else would sign them. So, you know, they didn't have a lot of negotiating power. So when Jerry says, well, OK, I'll, let's let's we'll form a label. OK, cool. That's all right. Oh, by the way, let me hear the music. And I said, ah, no, you can't hear the music. <laughs> Because I knew if he'd listened to the music, he would have rejected it out yeah, of hand. Yeah. You know, so I said, "Look, that's the deal. I won't take your money. You won't ask to hear the music." <laughs> and that's how IRS started. When we come back, we continue our conversation with Miles Copeland. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're talking with music executive and label co-founder of IRS Records, Miles Copeland. Let's hear more about what Miles had to say about the money aspect of the music industry and what it was like working with Sting. You know, th there's a, a sad undertone in parts of the book, Miles. Although you're a great raconteur and, and you have great stories and funny tales, often, you write at one point, a label's only as hot as the acts it represents. One thing's for sure, IRS was great at signing great acts. I would agree. But all too often, they had some inbuilt self-destruct within them. We had uh, more than our share of shooting stars. And, and it's true. You know, there's a big reassessment now of the Go-Go's career and the uh, phenomenal 
success they have. When you put out their debut album and the idea to pair them with Richard Goddard and they're crying, we had Kathy Valentine on the show. You know, they were crying. You know, they took all our rough edges away. It was like, yeah, yeah, they, they polished the melodies and you still had the energy and it was brilliant, right? But so many of those bands self-destruct. You tell the, the tale of the Bangles and the Go-Go's and uh, Wall of Voodoo. And, you know, I'm wondering uh, perspective-wise how much of it was that IRS was an indie haven, uh, a place that fostered creativity, but was still part of this big, bad, rapidly becoming extinct, if not already dead today, music industry. A&M, and then later MCA, they didn't understand these bands, they didn't care, and the pressures were always mounting to make the bands different than what they were. Whether it was Susanna Hoff's You Gotta Be Solo, you don't need those others, right? Yeah, but that was the charm of the band, was that it was four people, right? Or the Go-Go's, Belinda Carla, You Gotta Do This, You Gotta Do That. Everybody was always still telling bands what to do. We at IRS, you know, when we started, we were signing bands with very little money. We had nothing to lose. You, you jump five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years later, and we have offices to pay. You know, we have rent to pay. We have 60 staff to pay. The, and the other big thing that happened is the other labels woke up. So now when I went to a Go-Go's concert and, and no other A&R man was there to sign the group, I was the only one in the room. Now I would go see a group and there'd be 10 other people from other record companies who had a lot more money than I did. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I use the example of REM. You know, they were the one group that stuck their, their guns and got all the way to the end of the contract. You know, they did six albums for us. They're the only band in IRS that went beyond three albums. But at the end, they said, well, you know, we'll go to the open market and see what we're worth. You know, and if you offer us the most money and the best deal, we'll side with you. We'd love to be with IRS. We offered and offered money and money went up and up because now they were a big act and every label and their mother was offering money. And I went to Jerry Moss finally and said, look, it's more money than I have. Will you help me? And he said, I'll help you. And finally, it was down to A&M and Warner Brothers. And the group came to me and said, well, Miles, your offer is really good, but I think Warner's is going to beat you. And, and I said, well, go see exactly what they'll do and let's try to arrive at a conclusion here. So they, they came in later and they said, Miles, um, Warner Brothers said, whatever you pay, we'll double it. Oh, God. And I knew at that, I, there was no way. Oh, wow. You know, I couldn't cut a check for $10 million. So that, that deal at the time was the biggest <laughs> the music industry had seen. Yeah. I actually looked at the group and I saw the letter from Warner Brothers. And I said, gentlemen, here's my advice. Get out of my office. Go straight to Warner Brothers. Sign this right. deal before they change their mind. It's it's true. And I was very proud of the group that they had actually reached, and they actually probably, I, and I think it stands today as the best record deal ever made. Yeah, no, and, it's, it's legendary. You know, IRS had a real hand in that. You know, yeah. and I, I have to be proud of that. Of course, we lost the group, and. A lot of people got depressed in the label because, you know, we lost R.E.M., but that's life. You know, we also had a lot of bands that were very, very successful, you know, and they didn't realize what they had until years later. And that, you know, the Go-Go's is a great example. Uh, I think the Bangles, you know, were a great example. They reformed. A lot yeah. of bands reform, you know, once they realize, yeah. you know, I, I tell the story of Dave Gilmore and Pink Floyd, who said to me, you know, I, one night he, I go to a Floyd show and he comes back to my house and we got to chatting and he told me this story of how the Pink Floyd reformed and he realized that they had, had really had something that it didn't matter 
what the musicianship was. It was just somehow there was a unique combination at work. And that's really what counted. Yeah. And I think the Go-Go's discovered that, the Bangles discovered that, and a lot of bands that are reformed have discovered that. Mm-hmm. They had something great and then didn't realize it. Well, you know, with R.E.M., it's fascinating because they did have this longevity, which other bands, Jim had mentioned, all these bands that came and went, right? Uh, despite the fact that they were clearly talented people. You know, outside looking in, how would you explain R.E.M.'s longevity? What, what did they have that these other bands didn't? Besides, you know, obvious talent they had, but the other bands were talented too. What was it about R.E.M. that enabled them to sustain what they were doing over such a long haul? Well, I would say they were crazy in a very good way. They were not pretentious. They just said, look, we'll do what we do, and we'll get to the end of the contract, and we'll fulfill it. Where a lot of bands succumb to pressures from their friends or from, you know, the lawyers or the accountants saying, let's go get some more money. Let's do this. You know, I think Rory M were just one of these bands that just said, well, we believe in what we're doing. Let's go do it. And they were very, very unique. I'll be honest. They were the only act at IRS records that lasted the entire time. The police, however, stayed with A&M because the lawyer I had at the time was Mr. Moneybags. You know, his quote was always, it's not about the money. It's about the money. Right, right, right. <laughs> Take the money now. We'll worry about things later. So every time the band would have a success, he would say, hey, let's go make up the deal. The police also were, were older than a lot of the punk bands were. You know, they were wiser. They could have the latitude to be sensible, really. Whereas a lot of bands, I think, they, they're always skating on the edge of disaster and success. You know, and a lot of them are very successful. I mean, people like Wall of Voodoo, you know, Stan Ridgway, I still think is one of the super talented guys, but he was one of those guys that had the ability to shoot himself in the foot. Mm -hmm. The Cramps, a band I loved, you know, people thought they were pretty crazy and wild and they were, you know, they walk on stage and they would do crazy stuff off stage. They were really kind of nice people, but they were also weird. Mm -hmm. I remember I was in this crappy hotel and one of the Cramps came to visit me. Next thing I know, I'm thrown out of the hotel because... (laughs) The cramps came and visited me. You know? yeah. so, and I begin to realize that they, why they, they look upon the world as everybody's against them. Because you know what? A lot of people were. Everybody. Well, you tell some great <laughs> Steve Bader's stories, too. One of the very first interviews I ever did was with Lords of the New Church. Uh, I was in college at NYU, and they were playing at the Ritz in Manhattan. I love that band. You know, uh, Stiv had come from the Dead Boys, and it was kind of an idea that you had. Let's put this group together, Brian James of the Damned. I still, I could never understand a word Brian James said. It was obviously lost me, Jordan. I had no idea what he was saying. <laughs> I said to Stiv, can I take a picture while I'm here? And he, uh, he jumped on top of the couch and pulled the painting off the hotel wall and gave it to me. Uh, so that's Well, he used to do things. I mean, (laughs) I I remember him announcing on TV, well, it's anti-heroin week. And we thought, oh, that's good. Uh, So my advice, take cocaine. Yeah, right, 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 right. So that got us kicked off British TV. Oh, man. You know, I was surprised one story that you didn't tell about REM, because Peter Buck uh, told it for years in every interview he ever gave. I'm sure you heard this one too, Greg. You know, they said that a formative experience for them was seeing the police open at Shea Stadium. They opened for the police at Shea Stadium, right? I was at that show. I grew up in New York. And, uh, and they saw that each of the police arrive in different limos. And they said then and there 
that if we're going to survive in this business, we're not going to, we can't have that attitude. We have to be all for one, one for all. And famously, with Burtis Downs, their attorney, and Jefferson Holt, their road manager, they, they had a six-way split. You know, there was no star. There was no sting, right, getting all the attention. We were going to divide things evenly. And it worked for a good long time until they blew up on Warner Brothers. So <laughs> Warner Brothers gave all that money, but then they didn't last as a great band much longer. But I was wondering if you'd ever heard that, seeing what, what the police became fairly rapidly convinced them they wanted to be. Uh, and here's a word, you know, that IRS paved the way for, an alternative. Yeah, well, I think in the case of the police, there was a recognition that everybody is contributing. So Sting did give up a share of his publishing to the other members of the band and to me as the manager, you know. So he recognized that, all right, he wrote the song, but the others made a contribution. So, all right, I'm going to give a percentage away, okay? So everybody got a taste, so to speak. Now, in the case of the Go-Go's, Charlotte Cappy wrote the biggest hits, and the Go-Go's never really, I guess they never really thought about it at the time. She kept all the publishing for her songs. She said, well, I wrote the songs and their songs. Well, of course, by that first album, she made a lot more money than the drummer who wrote none of the songs. Right. So now there's started to be pressure. Well, how come she's making twice as much money as I am? I'm in the same group. So publishing has been, you know, one of the ba bands break apart. This is a famous story of Simon and Garfunkel. You know, yeah. it happened because Simon made all the publishing money and Garfunkel made nothing. So I think the REM were very smart to think, well, let's let's keep everything together by sharing it one for one and one for all. You know, the police sort of did that, but they still recognized the fact that Sting was really much more than the other two were uh, songwriting wise and that he should get the lion's share. And he did. Mm -hmm. And that did sort of work. The police did not break apart because Sting made more money than the other two. I think it really broke apart because Sting, if he chose the musicians himself, he could make the songs be exactly the way he wanted them to be. Uh, I think that was really sort of the motivation. It was more of a, it wasn't really about the money. Well, actually, none of the band were really. And I, that was one of the good things about them. And, I, I, you know, I think that was one of the, the good things about the police, actually. But there are other bands that it really was about the money. Money was one of the was the main reasons the Go-Go's broke up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way they, was, they were splitting up the royalties. You worked with Sting even after he left the police. You were managing him for quite a while. And uh, I, I interviewed you, Miles, a long time ago when Desert Rose became a hit in large measure because of something that you were able to engineer behind the scenes. But I thought it was kind of interesting that soon after you and Sting actually broke up. That whole period of time where you sort of pioneered the idea of songs and TV commercials breaking hits, turning songs into hits because they were exposed on TV. Uh, and that opened up a whole new era. How did that internally between you and Sting, how did that play out? It seemed like it had an impact on your relationship with him. You know, one of the things about Sting was really great. He said to me, look, I want to know the truth. Never lie to me. The other thing he said is be good to people on the way up because you may need them on your way down. <laughs> so he, he always had a pretty good philosophy of life. But by the time, you know, Desert Rose was a hit and Brand New Day was out, there was so much pressure from other people nipping at his ear. And he'd moved to New York. I was living in L.A. My proximity was less. And I sort of say in, in the book, you know, that I think he was listening and to people that were next to him all day, you know, 
And he finally just kind of threw his hands up in the air and said, well, you know what? I've, I've kind of been there and done that. You know, it's like he, he's not one of these guys that climbs Mount Everest and then sits there for several days basking in the view. You know, <laughs> he gets to the top and says, well, all right, I've done that. I think that's in a way how he thinks. You know, I don't know that that's true, but I sort of imagine that. And I think he he did it with the police. He did it solo with me. He and I had a good run, and uh, we all did very well. And you know, I I look back on it and think, well, good luck to you. And I have to be thankful for the experience that I had, and I'm sure he is as well. So. I would say, though, the general sense I get is that you were the one taking the chances in some ways because you were the one that suggested, um, you know, the, the, the unconventional ballad as the single for, for the police and then walk like an Egyptian, right, for the bangles. Like, nobody thought that was going to be... The record company didn't... The big label bigwigs didn't think that was going to be a hit, but well, you Well, it you was the same did. with Desert Rose. Yeah. The record yeah. company said it's not a single. Right. right. So, I, you know, it's funny, it's funny that I look back at it now and I realized that the biggest songs of my career were the ones that everybody rejected. Mm. In the case of Roxanne, it was even the band rejected it. You know? yeah. <laughs> Walk Like an Egyptian was such an obvious hit. But the record company said, no, it's not a single. We're not putting it out. It's too quirky. I mean, I, I listened to that song and I thought, well, that's a smash. Of course, you know, the Bangles were not particularly enamored with that song because there's no drumming in it. The drummer said, well, I don't like that song because I'm not on it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> sort of like Stuart thinking about um, every breath you take. I mean, it's hardly any drumming on it. So, mm-hmm. you know, he, he never really saw that song as a great song because he's not on it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that struck me about what you were doing with, with the label is this notion of the label being a selling point at a, at a certain point where people saw IRS and they go, I got to buy that record because it's an IRS. Well, I, I always was thinking about merchandise and I was always thinking about image and the name IRS was sort of a follow through from my father in the CIA. Cause it kind of jolt minute you say CIA an image comes to mind, yeah. you know, whether it be James Bond or some kind of wild shenanigans, who knows if an image, definitely happens. There's a kind of a mystique to it. Same as the police. You know, if you're in trouble, you want to call the police. <laughs> but if you're in a different kind of trouble, you don't want the police. So there's <laughs> yeah, a double yeah. entendre. Yeah. So it was always this idea of the establishment, yet we were anti-establishment. I mean, what could be more establishment than the IRS? Right. You oh, know? Yeah. I have to admit that the IRS man image was not my idea. It was a guy named Carlos Grasso, who was one of the, I think he was the fourth employee he brought in to do the art. And he, he created this man. But the minute I saw it, I thought, that's what we need. And it's a great image now, you know. So it has this sort of mystique to it. And people still buy the T-shirt. Image is one of the very important aspects of rock and roll. Whether it be Kiss or Elvis Presley shaking his legs or the Beatles with long hair or the police with three blonde guys, you know. Image is part of what helps sell the product. Well, Miles, uh, from your perspective today, we are down to three uh, global conglomerates. You know, to even call them labels in the sense that IRS was is is not even accurate, right? It's a completely different industry. 
and nobody is buying physical product. And uh, thanks to the pandemic, you know, the, the one source of income for a musician was shut down for a good 18 months, right? The world's only opening up again now. What do you make of where the music industry, whatever is left of it, what it's become? I, I would go back to what I just said. Now, I don't care how far back you go. The first job has always been, how do I get attention? How do I get noticed? Okay. So that job is still there today, but the platform may be different. Maybe it's TikTok today. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's whatever, but it's still, how do I get noticed? Mm -hmm. And I, and people say, you know, I mean, if you look at Donald Trump, how did that guy get to be president? <laughs> well, yeah. it's a great lesson in marketing. The more outrageous he was, the more press he got. Yeah. The same with the Sex Pistols and Malcolm McLaren. He realized that the more outrageous they are, the more press they're going to get. He didn't care that they couldn't play music or not. You know, he didn't care that they weren't great musicians. Matter of fact, he fired the one guy in the Sex Pistols who was actually a pretty good musician. Yeah. And he brings in Sid Vicious, you know. And I think that was the that that a lot of bands have learned that lesson. I mean, it certainly has not it certainly helped kiss. I mean, they make more money from merchandise than they ever did from, from ticket sales, you know, but I think with things like Spotify and some of the other avenues that are out there, it does expose people to, you know, listening to music they might not have ever heard before. I mean, they get exposed to music coming from Norway, from Finland, from strange places. I mean, I, I might, my, my, my sons, I mean, my youngest son is 21. And the other day he was playing some acts and I said, well, gee, what's that? What language is that? He says, well, I think it's Finnish. Hmm. Some group from Finland who would never would have got arrested 10 years ago, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Nobody would have ever heard of, you mm -hmm. know. And the fact that they're singing in a foreign language. When I, when Desert Rose came out, I was told, well, that, that song can never be a hit because it's half of it's in a foreign language. It's got to be in English. And I said, well, why? What's your favorite song on the record? They all said Desert Rose. And I said, well, then it's a single. And they said, well, no, it's in a foreign language. They, that, they couldn't cross that bridge, whereas Spotify has helped people cross that bridge. And I think it's kind of broadened people's perspective a bit. We have been talking to Miles Copeland on the occasion of Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, his uh, long-awaited memoir. We finally got one from Miles Copeland. Thank you, Miles, for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you, and uh, you all take care. That's it for our chat with Miles Copeland. You can find his book, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, anywhere you buy books, hopefully at a mom-and-pop store. If you have any thoughts on this interview or the episode in general, leave us a message on our website, soundopinions.org. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, it's time to unearth some more buried treasures. We're going to dig up some records that we think you need to hear. And this week on our bonus podcast, Jim takes us on a trip to the desert island to play a song he cannot live without. That's me. It's my desert island turn. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott.